0: Hey, everybody. Nice to see you here today. I'm glad that you uh, joined us. So today, there might be some uh, moments in the sermon where you need to talk to others around you. I will cue you on that. Uh, Please don't just talk to others around you uh, while I'm talking, (laughs) Kathy. Kathy. Kathy's like the only person I can reliably pick on each week and know that, know that she'll laugh. Uh, so there might be some moments where I just want you to uh, talk over like just a brief idea or, or something as we go. So I'm giving you that heads up just to be, uh, just so you know and are not surprised if I ask you to do that. It's also to make you nervous throughout the whole sermon so that, you know, you stay, you stay alert. We're going to stay alert today. I want to talk about the importance of immer- uh, Let me back that up a little bit. And take two. I want to talk about the importance of imagery when it comes to the spiritual life and talking about God. Um, Because there's a challenge when we talk about God, right? Which is, um, by his nature, he is difficult for us to understand or wrap our minds around. So how do you describe something that by its very nature goes beyond description? It's it's hard to do. And so what we have are basically a lot of images that help us to understand a little bit about God. So I want you to talk amongst yourselves here for just a moment, and what are some images that we have that help us explain who God is? Talk about that for just a minute. Okay, I heard chicken repeated so many times over here. <laughs> um, so what are some images that we use to explain who God is? Just throw one out. God in nature, okay. So nature is a way that we might reflect on uh, the love that God has for us or his power. Okay, what else? Father, good. That's, that's a pretty standard image for God. Anything else? Yeah. The Sistine Chapel. So how does that help us grasp God a little bit more? Okay, puts him kind of in uh, sort of a visual language we might be able to understand. Okay, good. Anyone else? He's the, unknown. the unknown, which helps us know him. <laughs> <laughs> it, acknowledges it acknowledges that he's there. Okay, good, Kelly. Mother hen and running underneath the safety of her wings. Good. <laughs> That's right. You had to stick. That's where the, all the chicken talk was coming from <laughs> over there. We probably don't realize it, but we constantly use images to talk about God. Father, friend, judge, the one who is above all things, who is all powerful, who we, we use these terms. For God, because obviously we can't, if, I mean, think for a moment about how you would describe God without using imagery. It's pretty difficult, isn't it, to come up with these things. So these images exist to help us understand the different facets of who God is. Not one image that we could talk about will cover God completely, But they sort of work together. And when you put all these images together, you begin to see who God is. And imagery is used throughout the Bible to help put not only God, but all sorts of spiritual things into a context that will help us better understand. For example, you could say, um, My heart really wants God. Or you could say, As the deer pants for streams of water, So my soul pants for you, my God. You could try to uh, describe the kingdom of God as something that is growing, and even though uh, it it looks small at the time, it's going to become something bigger. Or you could be like Jesus and say, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. Jesus constantly used images to help us wrap our minds and to help the people he was speaking to wrap their minds around what it was he was trying to talk about. Why? Because it was difficult. Some of the things he was trying to explain and he knew that if people were going to get it, get the point of what he was trying to say, he had to give them some sort of picture, some sort of image to wrap their minds around. So the point is that Frequently in Scripture, some some things that are too deep to explain are given life through imagery so that we might be able to wrap our minds around small parts of it. Now, Paul, throughout the book of Romans, has used imagery to help explain really difficult concepts. And one of the things that we have to remember about Paul to this point, we're still in chapter 6 of Romans, to this point Um, he's trying to have a rational conversation and not an emotional conversation. So he's still sort of in the process of explaining ideas and hoping that his audience will understand the concepts that he's talking about before he can move past those concepts to something else. So the images that he used are meant to be dramatic and to provide uh, a really stark contrast. So let's go back over what we talked about last week in the first part of chapter 6. And if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up to Romans chapter 6. Just a note, uh, the online Bible thing is not up today for some reason. Last week's is still up, but today's didn't make it. I was having some issues uh, with them this week. It will be up later, but it is not up today. All right, so what did we talk about last week in the first part of chapter 6? Number one, more grace does not lead to more sin. Alright, it's not the, the fact that we have more grace, it doesn't mean that we should just sin more because grace will abound. Number two, in order to live a new life, the old self must die. Number three, through baptism, our old self is crucified and buried with Jesus. Number four, just as Jesus rose to new life as the victor over sin and death, we too rise as those who are no longer under the control of sin. Number five, the new life we live, we live for God and not for ourselves. And number six, therefore, do not serve sin, serve God. And the whole point that, that kind of Paul was trying to make there is that once we were slaves to sin, but through baptism, we joined Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection to live a new life where we are no longer slaves to sin. So what was the first image that Paul used in this chapter to help us wrap our minds around some difficult concepts? Well, it was death and life, right? So the path for Jesus was death, burial, and resurrection. And through his resurrection, he gained victory over death, which was the power that sin held over the world. So death no longer had any power over Jesus. Now, We participate in that through baptism. We participate in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, which means that just as Jesus rose from the dead and defeated death, death no longer has any control over us and we live a new life. Now, why did Paul choose the image of life and death? Talk about that for a second. Why did he choose that specific image of life and death? Those of you in line, you can talk to me as if I were talking back to you. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's, yeah, that's a good point. I'm glad you said that. OK, why did he use the images of death and life to explain what's going on here? Good, because everyone understands life and death. Good. And, and there's another really primary reason. Why else? What's that? It affects everyone. everyone. Good. Everyone can understand it. It affects everyone. And these are terms that are definitive. Death is the end of something. New life is the start of something. Okay? He needs this sort of definitive thing. So why did Paul use this language? Well, number one, it literally happened to Jesus. But this thing that Jesus did in dying and raising again, those actions were definitive. They make a difference, as Randy said, once and for all. It it, it changes everything. And because of that, Jesus made new life possible for us. And he wants us to understand that the person who was controlled by sin, what happened to them? They died. And they died to sin and it goes away and in their place there is a new life. Not the old life. It's not like who you were before, just moved to a new address. The old you died and there is now a new you. He needs us to see this transition not as something casual but as something definitive and permanent. Death to the old. New life for us. So the challenge of the Christian life is to learn to live as the new people we have become and to increasingly reject who we were before we came to know Jesus. So how do we do that? Let's read today's passage. We're going to read the whole thing as we get started here today. Verses 15 through 23 of Romans chapter 6. What then shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means... Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I am using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourself as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourself as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. How many of you heard verse 23? All on its own, right? And we've talked about this before, but look at everything that's happening around that verse. It's complicated. And so the first thing we need to address from this is that Paul uses some imagery here that we are not very comfortable with. And it's the concept of master and slave. Now, why are we not, comf- not comfortable with these concepts? Well, for one thing, the entire thing has nothing but negative connotation and for good reason. It's hard to put a master-slave relationship into a positive spin because socially, culturally, historically, it has not been something that we even want to, want to talk about. It's so, it's so awful. So there's a ton of baggage that come with those two words. And this would have been true in the time that Paul wrote this letter as well. Slavery was in full effect in Rome. Uh, In fact, if families found themselves in uh, really difficult positions, they would actually sell their children into slavery to help pay a debt or something. I sometimes tell my kids that just to make sure they understand that they are living under our good graces. So it's quite possible that when Paul's readers heard this, they would have the same kind of reaction that we have to hearing the terms Master and slave. So why does Paul use a concept that he probably understood we're not going to like? Why, why would he use something that's so difficult for us to wrap our minds around? Why would he choose something that in the physical world we consider to be evil and to be avoided? Something that, that takes away personhood, freedom, and ability to choose. Why would he use that to describe spiritual things? Well, we don't know exactly why Paul chose to use this. Uh, He doesn't explain himself, nor does he need to. But he lets us kind of peek into why this image is so important. Because in the spiritual world, master and slave are just a fact. It's just how it is. So this means that we have to put away some of our notions, which is not easy to do, about what master and slave means in order to grasp what it is that Paul is actually saying. And so the first concept that we have to address here, if we're going to get to the bottom of this, is the idea of freedom. So let's talk about this question amongst yourselves. Is freedom a real thing? Discuss. Okay. Is freedom a real thing? This is not a trick question. I promise. At least I don't think it's a trick question. Is freedom a real thing? What do you think? Yes and no, Michael says. Why? You're always obligated to do and act a certain way. And, but on the yes side, if you are doing it out of your heart, then it becomes freedom. I okay, freedom. so on the yes side, if you're doing it out of your heart, it becomes freedom. See how much easier just it is just to stick with an image and not try to explain, <laughs> right? It's difficult, right? It's difficult even to put into words um, even the concept of what freedom is or what it means. Wayne, did you want to say something? Sure. Uh, you looked like you were ready to say something. Yeah. Okay, so Wayne says in some senses freedom is an illusion because we are free to think, but even that is subject to limitations of different kinds. Don? I think you have levels of freedom. Levels of freedom. Okay? In America, you have a lot more freedom to do things that you don't have in other parts of the country. Sure. The world. So, right. So, here in our country, we have more freedom than other people in other countries have. So, there might be levels of what we're free to do. Now, it's it's a challenge for us to define freedom or to talk about what it is and if it's real or not. Um, And part of that might depend on how we're defining the word. Like, what do you mean when you say freedom? Um, We understand that freedom includes self-determination, i.e., you get to make choices about things that you do. But we also understand, as Michael was saying, that there are limits cultural limits to the choices that we can make. You don't get to run around doing whatever you want in any circumstance, unless you're two. Then you get to run around doing whatever you want in any circumstance. We live in a free country, a country that really values freedom over a lot of different things, right? But our country has laws, And those laws apply to us and govern how we act. Um, Now, we fight about that all the time in arguing about what law should be this, or we literally fight about freedom, about who can tell us what to do and who should or shouldn't be able to tell us what to do. And it's a very contentious subject for us. Nevertheless, we believe in the idea that all people should have freedom, even if we know that freedom has limits which is what makes Paul talking about masters and slaves so hard for us. Because particularly in our country, what is one of the worst things you can imagine from an American set of values? That someone's freedom is taken away. It's one of the worst things that we could talk about. And so we hear Paul say that their servants and or or there's there's masters and slaves, and it just, it makes, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around because he's challenging the very ideas of what we think life is and what life is about. So here's what Paul is asking, maybe in a more simplistic question than, is freedom real? Can people ever truly be free, or is everyone a slave to something? And Paul's answer to that question is unequivocally that no one is free, period. Everyone has a master. In Paul's mind, though, there are only two options of what your master can be. You are either a slave to sin or you are a slave to obedience, righteousness, and God. Now again, these are words we don't like, but here's what sets what Paul is talking about aside from other kinds of slavery in our traditional sense. You are a slave, but you get to pick your master. You get to pick your master, and there is a huge difference between the two masters. Huge You get to choose, and your choice really matters. Why does he use such a strong example of master and slave? Well, he needs to to get us to wrap our minds around what he's talking about. So, if everyone is serving a master, how do you know what your master is? How do you determine what that is? Simple, people are a slave to whatever they choose to offer themselves to. Let's go back to verses 15 through 18. What then shall we sin? Because we are not under the law, but under grace. By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart The pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. So here we see him building a a little bit on what he was talking about uh, in chapter 6. Grace doesn't give you license to sin more um, or to continue living under the control of sin. Why? Because Jesus defeated sin and death and it no longer has control of you. You live a new life. From verses three through four of chapter six. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Death, life. Definitive things that have happened to us. Therefore, he's making the point now that when you choose to sin, you are choosing to offer yourself back to sin and death, giving them power in your life again because you get to choose. Now, he needs to point out that grace does not free us to do anything we want. It doesn't provide us the opportunity to live free from all restrictions. Yes, you have freedom in a new life through Jesus, but freedom is not the exercise of unlimited spontaneity. Again, you're not two. Right? It's not that exercise of being able to do whatever you want. It means, in this case, to be set free from the bondage of sin in order to live in a way that reflects the nature and character of God, which you could not do before Jesus. You see? Which you could not do before. You were not free before Jesus to live the kind of life that God wants you to. Jesus gives you the power to live a different life. Amen? Yeah. He gives you the power to live a different life. So freedom then, it means to be set free from the bondage of sin in order to live in a way that reflects the nature and character of God. So you can choose, if you want, to be a slave to sin, to offer yourself to sin, or you can choose, because everyone has a master, to be a slave to righteousness and obedience, which leads to God. And in Paul's mind, there is no other possibility. There is no third choice. There is no fifth option. There are no uh, extra plans you can add (laughs) to this. This is simply how it is. And the reason why he uses this master and slave is that he knows we can't understand what he's talking about any other way. In fact, he even says in verse 19, I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. In other words, I could say this to you in a different way, but if I did, you wouldn't get it. And what I really need you to get is that you're a slave period. You can have one of two masters. You get to choose. And you can tell who you've chosen based on who or what you are offering yourself to. Now, there are many who very naturally would rebel against these principles specifically because of the language, right? We've already said we don't like these words. These are not words that we want to embrace, And there are some who will refuse to accept Jesus because of these words. They might say that this is coercion on the part of God, Paul, and the church. And there are many, there are many who believe that if they choose to follow God, they are giving up all their freedoms that they have. They would argue against the idea that any of this is really much of a choice at all. So you mean, either I have to choose to obey God and lose my freedom, or I choose to obey sin and suffer punishment for it. Is that really a choice at all? So I want you to know something. There are people who do not want to believe they are slaves to anything, and this will always be a sticking point. And when they hear this kind of language, all they, all they are going to hear Is that God wants to control them? That's all they're ever going to hear. What gets missed then in this kind of passage when you come at it from that direction is that Christian teaching is always voluntary. You have to sign up for it. You know? You can't make anyone choose God. They have to choose it themselves. And Paul even says here, though he's using the master and slave language, what? You get to choose who you are going to serve. You just need to understand that the choice you make ultimately matters a whole lot because you get to choose your masters. There are benefits that come with choosing one or the other. Uh, Verses 19b through 22. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-creasing wickedness, so now offer yourself as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. Paul is kind of agreeing with people that, you know what, really, there isn't much of a choice. There, there isn't. Here's what you get to choose between. You get to choose a master who is only going to bring shame to your life and that story will end in death. Or you can choose a master who is completely different, who sets you free from the things that would control you and offers you eternal life. As a slave to sin, the only thing you got was death. But when you are set free from sin and become a slave of God, what you get leads to holiness and eternal life. We have to pay attention to how he says this, okay? Because it's important. He's already made the point uh, previously that we can't achieve holiness on our own, that we do not receive eternal life on our own. It is only through Jesus that these things manifest. So hold on to that thought for a second. Because in the end, it all really does come down to verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can argue about slavery and freedom all you want, but this is the story. Now, here's what's interesting about this and everything that he's said prior in terms of us having a choice or having options. The wages of sin is death, which means what? As you sin, you are earning something, which ultimately leads to death. It sounds like a terrible retirement plan, if you ask me. But but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord, meaning that God gives it to you. You are not earning eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord, God is giving it to you. All right, final questions. Is Paul saying that once we are in Christ, we have the ability to choose not to sin? The answer is yes. You you had a 50-50 shot on it. You know, it's like he is saying that. He is saying that you have the ability to choose. Okay? Okay. Is he saying that once we are baptized, we won't sin anymore? No, he's not saying that. And if you think he's saying that, just wait for chapter (laughs) 7. So what is he saying? We have the ability to choose sin, God, death, life. We have choices to make. And we can't forget, though, that this entire thing is built upon the grace of Jesus Christ that we are all sinners who cannot save ourselves but are saved by Jesus. Paul knows that we are going to continue to make mistakes and sin. He knows that he is going to continue to make mistakes and sin. But the bigger question is, who do you serve? Because that's your choice. Your choice is not whether you will or will not sin ever again. The choice is, Who are you offering yourself to? Because when you participate in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, you die to sin. And you live with God. And because of that, everything changes for you. When you would have sinned before, sin was your master because ultimately it had the final word on you. It wrote the end of the story. You were earning something. But Jesus changed all of that for us so that sin is no longer our master if we die with Christ and choose to offer ourselves to God. Are we going to do that perfectly? No, but that's not the point. The point is, you are offering yourself to God. And every moment, whether you succeed or fail, you are not offering yourself to sin you're offering yourself to God and that church makes all the difference we will not be perfect but God is our master and that is the best news because it's not sin that leads to death it is love grace a gift that leads to life. So let's recap. Number one, freedom is an illusion, my friends. Everyone has a master. Number two, your master is the one you serve. Duh, right? Number three, you get to choose who your master is. Number four, you can serve either God or sin. Period. Number five, either choice comes with benefits. Number six, sin earns death. Eternal life is a gift from God. So we still may be uncomfortable with the language. We still may not know how to explain it. But I'm grateful that Paul used something that was so hard for us to understand. That makes us think so much. I know, I hate thinking, right? If I could just not think. But he uses this on purpose. So that we understand we are going to serve something. But it's our choice who we serve. And praise God that we get him as a master because there is no better master than the God who would send his son to this place to die for us that we might have life with him. Amen.